Paleo nerds. Two grown men. One plays with dolls. The other draws dinosaurs with crayons. Together they explore the prehistoric past with experts from across the globe. Paleo nerds. Cause deep time will blow your mind. David, my man, it is good to see you again. I'm excited. We're going to do another Paleo Nerd episode. Yay! Yeah, it's cool, yeah. man. It's good. It's good. And I'm excited because it's a new year and I'm kind of, uh, I'm on that high because this is the start of the Roaring Twenties. The Roaring Twenties! The Roaring Twenties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I was saying that, you know, uh, I think we need to wait till March, dude, because March will come in like a lion and go out like a lamb. And what's that from? Stuff that Americans say. <laughs> you mean it's not like some from a Greek tragedy or uh, some Roman orator? Uh, I think it's an old English thing. Oh, uh, whatever. Okay. I don't know. Let's, we'll, uh, we'll look it up. Wikipedia. It's probably a spring thing. It has to do with it. March is the first hints of spring. <laughs> hey, man, there's been a lot of cool science since we last spoke, and we yeah. kind of ping each other with little stories. But I... I I think one of the weirdest kind of coolest things is is really more kind of anecdotal. There's been no scientific paper on it, but it was it's the fact that swordfish murder sharks. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I like, saw this what? video. A shark dies and is, you know, rolling around on the surf. This guy comes up to it and uh he sees something sticking in its head pulls it out and it's the tip of a swordfish bill. Right, right. That was a thresher shark on the was beach it? in in Africa, I think. And but then they, they yeah, they started gathering up these different stories, a lot of blue sharks and they're being stabbed in the brain by swordfish, but uh, So it's but intentional. It's intentional. Yeah, right in the brain area, but um, you know, so there've been yeah, anecdotal but you know, stories. Yeah, but think about Yeah, but think about it. If you're going to be stabbing a fish and you do it for generations and generations or tens of thousands of years, stabbing it in the middle or the tail is not going to do anything or keep the threat away or keep it from eating your food source. So evolution would have it that stabbing it in the head is going to render it unconscious or... Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is this is not a predatory attack So because obviously swordfish don't eat sharks. They're like defending their territory or yeah. maybe they're just cranky old fish, but you know they're <laughs> or, they're pissed off. But I or or go ahead. Or they're or they're pissed off because we still hunt them. Yeah, and right. they're like you know oh my god my my aunt Mabel just got long lined by a Maine fisherman. So, I think I'm going to go kill a shark. So they got to take it out on someone or something. <laughs> but here's what's cool. All right, convergent evolution, convergent right. evolution. We have seen. That shape of a swordfish before in our yeah. deep past. We see yeah. it in ichthyosaurs, yeah. almost identical. We also see it in Cretaceous fish. Well, wait There's a minute. One... Isn't it an ichthyosaur more like a dolphin snout rather than a long bill-shaped? Some oh. of them actually almost have uh, pretty Pointy. much look like a really? swordfish. There are some species that are like it's a, it's a very sharp-looking really? oh, beak. Really? Oh, okay. I'll send you a picture or we'll post it on the on the website. But where I was going, there's a fish from Kansas called Protosphyrena, which has got all kinds of teeth, but it's also got a beautiful 
just rostrum, just like a swordfish. And Are they called rostrums? They're not called bills? What do you mean? Is it a rostrum, rostrum like a nose? Like a nose. Rostrum is a nose, like this, Or, or yes. the business end. The business end. <laughs> so there's, I saw a beautiful fossil at the Gem and Fossil Show down in uh, Tucson a few years back. And it was a beautiful ammonite, a large placentiserous ammonite that had a huge spike like right through it. An and ammonite? An ammonite. And this was on the market. I don't know where it ended up. Wait, wait, what kind of spike though? But the theory is that it was a proto-sirena that stabbed it. So. Oh, right. So they haven't identified the stabbing thing, what, what it is. But it pretty much looks like a swordfish snout stuck in this ammonite. Well, so I, I don't know. I, years ago, a fisherman was killed by a swordfish that leaped out of the water like over a canoe. This is somewhere in Indonesia. But I think that was an accident. Uh, there, uh, there's been anecdotal stories of them, or actually historical accounts of them attacking boats. So, right. I don't know. Anyways, it's cool, natural science. Um, there's been some other kind of a... You've got a few tidbits, don't you, from the last... Uh, Are you drawing a blank, dude? Yeah, I'm drawing a blank. I mean, I get paleo news in my news feed every day, and there's always something amazing. I also get astronomy, SpaceX news, uh, you know, launches, archaeology, and history. So I I'm inundated with all the sciences, and so I can't always remember which paleo story. Well, let me ask you this, David. Yeah. We did an astounding 16 episodes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And looking back, what did you learn? What sticks with you? What Do you look at the world in a different way now? Is there something that... Uh, That's a great you know? question. I thought you were going to ask me what what was my favorite episode or favorite yeah, guest. It, like, yeah, what's, yeah. What's something that maybe changed your view on the history of life? Well, I think... A very profound yet simple thing is when you told me that genera means general and species <laughs> means specific. That blew me away. How simple that I never learned that one. Well, we never actually, I was thinking about this too. Family, family, genus and species, right? Right. right. So let's take crows and ravens. Okay. Crows are uh, the family is Corvidae. Corvidae, right. So that's right. the family. family. And then the the genus of species, so the crow and a raven. Birdie, they're birdies. Corvus corax oh. is the raven. Right. The black raven. And Corvus brachyrhynchus, I'll have to look it up, is the uh, crow. So I thought, crave, I thought cravens. I thought crows and ravens were the same bird, animal species, but just named differently depending on where they're at. Nope. They're nope. completely different species. Yeah, different species. Within same a family. genus. No, same genus within the family Corvidae. So Corvidae includes gotcha. like blue jays gotcha. and, yes, yes, you know, yes. stellar jays. Yeah. But anyways, so you got that now? Okay, yeah, I got that now. Okay, so back to your question. I think what I really took to heart or affected me was Peter Ward and the description and his theories of mass extinctions and what caused them. And he just describes how single-cell animals terraform this planet for the good and the bad. And when you think about that, how many trillions and trillions of individual single-cell organisms to change this planet and cause others to die or cause a mass extinction, 
is absolutely insane and mind-boggling. Although most of these mass extinctions were coupled with volcanic events, which helped. Right. You know, it was really interesting contrasting uh, Peter's episode with uh, Carl Safina's episode, and one was pretty yeah. dark, and <laughs> and uh, rightfully so. There's a lot of stuff to think about. But, yeah, but you know, that's also the glass half full, half empty, you know? Right, and Carl gave a more positive yeah. outlook just on the, the course of life. But, uh, but yeah, I learned a lot looking back. What was your, what was your epiphany? Wow. Oh, I learned a lot from Dana staff about the cephalopods. That was a, that was a fun episode. Uh, I never stopped learning from our good friend, Dr. Kirk Johnson. He, he's always yeah. got something new to yeah. blow my mind. But you with. know what? He explains stuff in a way that you feel like you're around a campfire with him. Yeah. You know, it's just so yeah. fun to listen to and you're on the edge of your seat. It's uh, it's really, uh, he has an exciting way of explaining scientific jargon. Yeah. And we talked to communicators too. I mean, people who weren't actually, you know, scientists, scientists, or they're doing research scientists, but there's a lot of, you know, we talked to Amy Atwater about scientific outreach and just, she made it really fun and engaging. She's the one that recommended our guest today. That's who right. is a communicator? As a communicator, you got to take all this uh, science that sometimes is just really not all that exciting, but you can, well, make it exciting. And, you know, there's exciting yeah. science. And I've watched her episodes, PBS Eons. and uh, I've been binging. You've been binging. Yeah, me too. Yeah. They are just fun to watch. Well, I think we can learn a thing or two from her because they have a huge following and I uh, wonder how she did it. And yeah, there's just actually some behind the scenes kind of stuff I'm sort of curious about, about that show. And then, of course, her job is, um, you know, she's got a pretty cool job. Yeah. Well, do you want to tell everybody who she is? Callie Moore is the person I am talking about. She's a fossil librarian, I think. Yeah, I like that term, instead of collections manager. So let's call her up. Let's call her. By the way, we have a choice. We can use an old rotary phone, or mm. we can use the magic of radio and just say, here she is. Pick one. I like dialing up on the old dialing phone, man. That's okay, like, let's you know, do it. Let's do well, that you can one. Hear it right, you can hear it right now. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Dave, meet Callie Moore. She's at the University of Montana. She is the collections manager there, and she is also the co-host of Eons, which is a PBS YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah. Hello, everybody. Hey, hey, it's great <laughs> to meet you. I've been watching Eons, and it's really good. Brilliant. <laughs> Callie, you're born in Missouri, I guess, but you're sort of a Midwestern person. I, I spent some time in the Midwest and went to high school in Kansas and college in Kansas. Nice. What's what's your back? How did you become a paleo nerd? Right, uh, I I blame it all on my dad. He he was the original uh, paleo nerd in our family. So he grew up in northwestern Missouri as well, and collected a bunch of the mid continent Carboniferous. So this is about 300, 350 million year old fossils and crinoids, brachiopods, bivalves, all sorts of stuff. And um, he also collected arrowheads too. But I always oh. Oh, yeah. thought that the fossils were way cooler than the arrow. So wait, he was like, a professional right. or or um, just an amateur. He was just a big nerd. He collected stamps, had a telescope, had a microscope, oh, you know. Sounds just, like my just... lounge room. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
still my life too. So um, yeah, so I always looked at his fossils and then I started looking for fossils. I was like, oh, yeah. you can find these in rocks. All right, so any rock that I found, uh, I looked in it and it happened that there is a big limestone outcropping where I grew up, right in the woods behind my house. And so I would go bring back these giant chunks of limestone and me and my dad would sit there and like, <laughs> hammer out all these cool, fossils and cool. stuff. So I just, it stuck then. Um, and from there, I just, it never stopped. What was your coolest fossil you found as a kid? What was... Yeah. What was... Oh, man, I really, really liked the the big brachiopods. There was some, some very large brachiopods in that area. And with the limestone, you can get a lot of calcium uh, secondary mineralization. So you can get all these big calcite crystals. And so every once in a while, you'd accidentally bust open one of these shells, and there would just be a huge, like a geode on the inside of a fossil. So not only do you get a fossil, but you get... Get like this bonus geode out of it too. So a bivalve so is like always... a bivalve is like a clam. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right. Yep. So bivalves have uh, their their symmetry is between the two shells. Right. So if you can think about taking two shells apart, they're the exact same. And then a brachiopod has the line of symmetry down the middle between the two shells. So the two shells are symmetrical on the left and right half versus individual. Okay. So brachiopod yeah. are mirrored. Right? Mm -hmm. Mirrored halves, but a bivalve right. is, the center line is bisects. Wrong again, Dave. Backwards. The brachiopods, the center line bisects the shell, and then uh -huh. uh, the bivalves have the mirrored right, shells. Right. Yeah. Let me ask you this, Callie. So there you are in the Midwest digging up seashells mm -hmm. from oh so long ago. And you began to identify these and learn your polysyllabic Latin names with your dad. And did you do school reports? And then what happened? How did you? And then you went on to college. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So There's a little I, gap in there. Yep. So I got a little uh, fossil ID book and I started IDing them. Um, I also started getting really into modern shells, even though I had never been to the beach. Um, our local dollar store sold little baskets of shells. <laughs> and so... Cool. Um, I would get those with my allowance and then I would organize them by gastropods and bivalves and single shell. And I was, I tell you, that's I've, so I've nerdy. Been a nerd that's for... so <laughs> nerdy. But I love it. I, I love it. I, I know. And so I kept going. Um, I think in like third or fourth grade, I did a project about what I wanted to be when I grew up. And uh, I picked a paleontologist. Ah, and, yes. Did yep. you do a science fair or two with all your fossils? You know, I didn't. Uh, I did. I've lived in a pretty urban, uh, poor urban um, school district. And like, I hmm. never even heard of science fairs until I was like out of K through 12. Uh, so they were not real big. Unfortunately, I would have killed it. I would have crushed it. I wish I could have gone to a science fair when I was a kid, um, but I knew I never got the chance. Uh, but yeah, I and so through middle school, I was still kind of hanging tough. Then high school, I went all angsty and artsy, and uh, I wanted to artsy. go to yeah, I wanted to go to art school, and um, I wanted to be a photographer. And then I was like, oh, that sounds too hard to make money. Um, <laughs> well, maybe I'll look into paleontology again. And for whatever reason, I thought that like paleont, like you don't, that's not a real. Job. Job. like that's not the nine to five job like you don't make money being a paleontologist um you, you don't actually make a lot of money well, correct me if i'm wrong aren't a lot of paleontologists they teach anatomy during the day yeah yeah so tell me about or geology or geology mm -hmm. so oil geology so they, they're professors yeah. during the day and then museum 
curators at night? <laughs> Sometimes. A lot of times uh, a curatorship is a whole different world. Um, you usually work your way up through academia, get your PhD, and then move into a museum field. Um, a curatorship is a huge job. That's, that's your only thing that you can do if you're a curator of a big museum, say like the Smithsonian or something. But otherwise, a lot of times you are just a professor teaching at a university and you spend your summers in the field or you have grad students that you um, send into the field to collect the data for you or whatever. Um, you could write books. That's usually how people make money is writing books. So, okay, um, I'm going to ask you a real stupid question. <laughs> your collections manager, you call yourself a fossil librarian, which is the most right. awesome description. <laughs> Tell me the difference between a collections manager and a curator's. Yeah, so a curator is like the main head honcho of a museum. The collections managers are working very, very closely with the collection, making sure everything is... Um, accessible and conserved and preserved for future generations. So they're really working with loans, working with researchers. But a, a curator is finding funding, getting donors, right, right. planning More the future, having board members. Yeah. yeah, lots of it, administration. Not to say that curators don't also do science and work very closely with their collections managers. Um, but that's usually how a, a museum it. works. Got it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're going to get to that in just a second. I was still following your path where you were almost <laughs> an artist. Yes. Which I thought was very cool. And I managed to claw out an existence doing that and loving. Somewhere there was a turn and... You ended up digging fossils in college, I believe, did you not? Yeah, yeah. So I, um, in college, I was going to be, I switched it all up again. I was like, I'm going to be a high school biology teacher. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to teach biology. And I went to like the top teaching school in Kansas, Emporia State uh. University. And I could not get into it. I just couldn't get into it. But part of my degree was to take a physical sciences course. So basically, you know, geology, learning planetary sciences, all kind of rolled into one. And it was the most amazing thing I've ever taken. Just, I was like, yep, this is it. Changing my major. Like after wow, the first cool. week of that class, I changed into the geosciences and started my paleo minor there. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. And then the ultimate uh, task or, or experience I got, I guess, was at Ashfall Fossil Beds in Nebraska. So I was one oh, of, wow. yeah, I was one of their first, um, they had this internship program for a long time and then it kind of fizzled out. Um, and then they re resurrected it. And I was one of the first resurrected, uh, interns there that summer, summer of 2006. Ah, it was a great summer. Uh, What's that Ashfall and what age is yeah, it? Yeah. Tell us all about that. Oh my gosh. It's amazing. Uh, it's an ash bed, so um, it's about 11.5 million years old, and it's located in northeastern Nebraska, and it was created by the ash that fell after the Yellowstone hotspot oh. exploded uh, back in that time. It's mid-Miocene, so the then. Yeah, yeah. So the the hotspot, you know, it doesn't move, but the plate moves over it. And so at this time, the hotspot was actually in southwestern Idaho. But there was enough ash that it buried northeastern Nebraska in like five feet of ash. Wow. wow. And so these animals were all living kind of around a watering hole during this ash fall event. And it's it's bad stuff. Volcanic ash, if you ever look at it under a microscope, it looks like glass Christmas balls have exploded. 
It's some nasty stuff. It's all silicate slivers. Yeah. So wait, did all these animals die like Tuesday at three o'clock? No, mm -mm, no. Uh, some of the little ones probably died pretty quick, but the larger animals, it took a very long time because what happened was these animals were still drinking and they were digging through the ash trying to get down to the grasses to graze. And so they were breathing in a lot of it. And it basically just destroyed their lungs slowly over time. So these animals, like some of the larger, um, there's a species of rhino out there, a big pot-bellied rhino. Tell us the name. Uh, I think it's, uh, man, I think I say it wrong, but I've always said it like this. I want to see how you say it. Okay, Teleoceros. I'm, that's how I say it. Okay, good. All right, I'm not alone. All right, so Teleoceros. Yeah, I've never heard of that name, so. Oh, man, it is a cool beast because it looks, it's just this massive rhino, but like with tiny little legs. Little legs. The tiniest Right. It's like looks. It's it's a babar. Looks it looks like a cartoon or something. But anyways, there's tons of these rhinos. Yeah, with tiny legs. <laughs> Is there like evidence? Are you saying there's evidence of digging through the ash? Well, we think they would have. They would have dug like used their face, you know, to sure. try to push. I mean, they they didn't know the danger of what they were doing, obviously, but they still got it. So these these so, animals died in weeks or months or years. Yeah, well, that's what it was. So the smaller ones died quickly, and then the bigger you got, the slower it took for you to finally suffocate and die. And are these deaths determined by the layers? Mm -hmm. Whoever died first, or is it the bottom layer? Yep, exactly. The kids. And then the big rhinos are on the top and the reason why the the really brutal analysis of these skeletons Ooh. is that we can tell they suffocated to death because when your body starts to lose oxygen it starts to create more bone it starts to grow another layer of bone to try to make more red blood cell to carry more oxygen through your system because you have it well and you so, have edema basically pulmonary yeah, edema yeah, yeah. So your face swells, your hands swell. Ouch. It's awful. It, I, I used to know the name of the disease. Um, it's a really long one. It's a God, it, I have mornings like that where oh. the coffee kind of cures that. But, <laughs> but so besides all these short-legged rhinos, mm -hmm. where, how many other beasts are there? Or is it pretty much just solid rhinos? Oh, man, there are a lot of rhinos. Uh, this happened during the spring, we know, because there are baby rhinos. Uh, dead and everywhere. They, there was a nursery that we think that got taken out by this uh, volcanic event as well. But there were several different species of horses, some with three toes, some with one toes. There were bone-crushing dogs, the Borophagy. Oh, yeah. There were camels. Um, there were big, like, cranes uh, that kind of looked like secretariat birds. Um, what else How about there? killer pigs? Any killer pigs? Intelodonts. I don't think there were any killer pigs that. No, no, intelodonts that they haven't found. They have found um, proboscidean footprints. So That's elephant. Like an elephant. Yeah. Yeah, but it's probably more Gomptothere being back in the Miocene. So probably not our traditional elephants or mammoths, but the mastodon Gomptothera, uh, Gomptotheridae family. And yeah, oh, I think saber-toothed deer. 
pretty sure. Oh, Tortoise. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nice. I mean, oh, just a wonderful picture of that Miocene life in Nebraska. So you're the college kid there. Were you working on the dig or were you an interpreter or what? I was mostly an interpreter. They had not opened up. Uh, this was back when they had the old barn there. So they've recently built, well, not recently anymore, uh, like five years ago, maybe even more now. Oh, man. That's recent. Uh, they, built this, <laughs> they, they built this huge new barn and it covers more of the exposure. So they're now starting to dig down. When I was there, they had maxed out underneath the barn. So they were no longer digging. So I really cut my teeth on um, science communication there. So I was uh, answering questions in the rhino barn, answering questions while I prepped fossils uh, from a different little locality that I was working on as a research project. And then I was also giving geology tours around the park and describing wow. geology to everybody. What do you like better? Do you like talking to people and explaining or digging through a, a drawer in a darkened room? And Oh, you know, that's that's a tough one. That's really tough because I, I like to look at stuff. I like to go through things. I like to organize stuff. Um, but I also really like talking to the public. So I don't know. I mean, I started out classically here on the University of Montana digging through drawers, but part of my job was always outreach. Um, and the more I did it, the more I enjoyed it. And so now I'm super comfortable with it. You know, I look forward to my outreach. It seems like you really got your showbiz chops there <laughs> uh, at uh, Ashfall. Yeah, probably. These are people pulling off the highway and you're explaining what happened. But now you've got this kind of perfect synthesis of uh, the collections and then you're doing showbiz on eons. So you ended up also digging at the Kansas Hamilton Quarry, did you not? Oh, and there's yeah. a link between that and what's the Hamilton Quarry? I've never been there. limestone quarry in, uh, let's see, this would be southeastern Kansas. It's close to Emporia, but it's also carboniferous in age, and we also find very similar type species of fish, shark, coelacanth, um, very similar to the ones that you can find up here in the Bear Gulch. Uh, the, the coolest part, I think, about the Hamilton quarry is you can find these giant cockroaches. They're really? just massive, massive, really? giant, yeah, and uh, giant cockroaches. Well, wait, but is it the limestone marine sediment? Are these things that died and sank to the bottom? Yeah, or they were living on the edge right. and got floated out. Kansas has both the Mesozoic Inland Sea and it has the Carboniferous. Paleozoic. Uh, what, what sea was that called? Was that part of the Inland Sea or no? No. 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 Was it? It's way before that. Way that was before. when the coastline yep. of North America looked like a proto-Atlantic Ocean. Kind of. This is back when um, basically the western coast of our country was the Midwest. Right. Uh, so right. it was, so this was, was, was way before that. Yeah. Um, and so it was a shallow sea, but it was right on the edge of the sea. So it wasn't an inland sea. But there in Montana, there was a, another little a shallow sea that kind of came in. It was more of like an embayment uh, that created the, the the Bear Gulch up here, which is slightly younger. So uh, Hamilton Quarry is older. It's closer to the Permian. Um, and uh, Bear Gulch up here is in the Pennsylvanian, in the late Carboniferous. And so, yeah, so there was some overlap there, which actually was really funny. I... 
discovered the Bear Gulch while I was researching the Hamilton Quarry. And I was like, wait, what's this place? I've never heard of Missoula. Wow, that looks spectacular. Oh, and they have fossils that match. And that's what actually got me interested in the University of Montana. But then it was too much. And uh, I could not fathom going into a graduate program. I was just like, there's just no way. There's no way my head's going to explode. Um, and so my advisor was really pushing me. He was like, well, what are you going to do then? You know, <laughs> you just can't stop. And I was like, yeah, I know. I'll figure it out. Something will come. Something will turn up. And I was in a class called Geowriting and Geoliterature where we were learning how to write for geosciences. And half of the course, <laughs> I mean, it was very important. I wish they had it everywhere for every single science. There should be a writing class that teaches you how to write properly for your science. Um, but half of the class was applications and building your resume and learning how to write a cover letter. Again, super important skills to have. And my professor just um, passed out some, I think it's Earth Magazine, but it used to be GeoTimes. And in the back, I got a relatively recent edition of it, and the job announcement for, for this job was there. So I think it's kind of funny. You're teaching the kids how to apply for a job, and you go, wait a minute, there's a job. <laughs> there's a job. I read you powered through 30 days of getting your resume together, and you and you yeah. got the job. That's so cool. I did, yeah. yeah. How long you was, been there? I, I've been here since January of 2008. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, so I've been up here a while now. Job security. Yeah. That's a while. <laughs> kind of. So you're kind of, Amy is out at uh, Bozeman, right. and she's at Montana State. You're at the university. Amy Atwater, yeah. in a previous episode, we talked to her. So you guys are like fossil librarians on either side of the state. Do you, like, call each other up and say, <laughs> what have you checked out lately? Or could I actually check out a fossil? Could you check out, if you needed a fossil, I'm sure we could loan you a fossil, yes. No, no, but um, no, but someone off oh, the street yeah. can't just walk in. You have to have True. some cred. You, you There's need, a process. There is a process to get fossils from us. We we need to know you're legit. If you're a grad <laughs> student, we don't, um, we don't loan to you. We loan to your advisor. They sign all the paperwork. You know, you are not in charge of this loan if you're a grad student. But yeah, we chat every once in a while. I wish we chatted more. I'm very horrible at calling people on the phone and that's all we can do nowadays Ugh. what's the coolest fossil in well, your collection I, I was gonna i have the same question ray but i've got a two-parter well then let's let's all right dave i'm gonna yield gonna to yield. you i asked it I first know. though I beat no, you. i've been waiting to ask this i've been you. waiting to ask this all right how david, many fossils ahead. are in your collection and what is the coolest oh you know what oh, how about this I like i'll that. say how many and then you ask what's the coolest ray so okay, how many fossils go. are in your collection there at the university of montana um, and what is the coolest one that's oof. what i want to know okay so how many fossils we don't no, yet. So we're still working on a full oh. inventory. Uh, paleontologists are notoriously bad for getting super excited to go collect fossils, but then not process them when they get back. Uh, so we've got years and years and years of fossils that were collected. Um, so for example, almost our entire Cambrian trilobite collection was collected in the 30s and 40s and never curated. Um, and it's thousands, multiple thousands of specimens wow. strong. Wow. So we still need to get through and process all that. And they're not even prepared the because 80s. if you prepare a trilobite, there's there's little spines and. Well, and... sometimes there are. These aren't as pretty as some oh, these other are stone um, bugs. 
these are yeah, these are these are a little boring, but we've got a lot of them, and it's a, from a really important time of trilobite evolution. It's from a, an important area, the Rocky Mountain West, where you have a lot of these Middle Cambrian trilobite localities. So it would be great if we could get all that information on our database. So I estimate we probably have about fifty thousand specimens somewhere in that neighborhood. We have a little over thirty, almost forty thousand on the database. So I could totally see there being ten. 1,000 more specimens to curate. Oh, oh my God. Wow. Um, <laughs> that's a lot of work. Especially fossil right, fatigue. Fossil fatigue. And I don't have my army of uh, volunteers right now either. So. And what's the coolest thing? Man. Mm. Let's see. The museum is on fire. You can only rescue one ah! fossil. Oh, Which no. one okay, is it? Well, that changes it. Because, well, no. You can't say well, that. Well, it changes a little Come bit. Come on. I'll, I'll, I'll say both because this actually allows me to say more than one favorite. Uh, so <laughs> if it was an emergency and I had to grab like one thing or one drawer, it would be our holotypes. So the holotypes are namesakes of a certain genus species. So we, I would have to say, I would have to say those. Wait, meaning and that the, is the grandfather fossil that all other fossils under it are compared to? Exactly. Right. Yes. And we have a lot of the holotypes. Sorry, types. grandmother. <laughs> Thank you. I was going to get you on that, man. Grandmother. Yep. Grandmother fishes. Um, and so these are mostly the holotypes for the bear gulch. Um, wow. And so lots of sharks, fish, um, bony fish, cartilaginous fish, uh, lobed fin fishes, shrimps, horseshoe crabs, a ton of things. So that would be probably, and those are some of my favorite fossils because okay. they are so well preserved and they're amazing. Oh, so it's Chimera, a Lagerstatten? How do you say that? La Lagerstatten. La yep. Lagerstatten. Which means mm -hmm. what? What does that mean in German? I assume it means super awesome fossil locality, but or, I'm not fluent. No, Lagerstatten <laughs> means, means uh, really a whole lot of fossils in no. one place. Does it? Yeah. So, well, I, I think it has a more, uh, a more eloquent. We were kind of close. A Lagerstatten is a sedimentary deposit that exhibits extraordinary fossils with exceptional preservation, sometimes including preserved soft tissues. These formations may have resulted from carcass burial in an anoxic environment. Remember that? No oxygen. And it has minimal bacteria, thus delaying the decomposition of both gross and fine biological features. That's gross, not in <laughs> disgusting, but gross as in larger biological features. And what Dave forgot to say is that Lagerstatten actually means place of storage in German. That's right, place of storage, or in other words, a place with a whole lot of fossils. But the Lagerstattens around the world, like the new ones from China, have, mm -hmm. have uh, organic uh, preservation and skin yep. impressions and feathers. Mm -hmm. And little right. feetsies and all kinds of stuff. Oh, yeah. Everything is there. Everything, is, Everything there. is there. So there's two different types of Lagerstatte. There are the ones where you have a lot of the same species preserved. So you have little ones, big ones, in-between ones. You have males and females, but they're all the same species. So uh, Ghost Ranch in... New Mexico? Is that in New Mexico? New Mexico. Yeah, it's in New, New Mexico. Mexico. New Mexico. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, that has a ton of coelophysis. They're big ones, little ones, what we think are maybe males, maybe coelophysis females. Coelophysis are theropods that are small little mm -hmm. theropods. Little bitty guys. Little bitty yep. guys, yeah. In fact, aren't they the ones that kind of surrounded that little girl in Jurassic Park? I think that was supposed to be them or either Compsognathus. They look very similar. 
Incorrect, Dave. But, uh... But we digress. Yes. You still have a get you're about to tell us about. <laughs> My favorite fossil. Right. The favorite fossil. Uh, I haven't given up on that. Oh, yeah. So the other the other type of Lagerstatten, before we go back to my favorite fossil, is when you have a, oh, okay, a, right. a menagerie of well-preserved uh, Ecosystem, so, yeah. Yep, yeah, an entire ecosystem. All right, so favorite fossil. Hmm. You know, we have these tortoise legs from the... <laughs> on a yeah, stick? From the, <laughs> no, not on a stick. They're pretty large. But the tortoise leg must have got stuck in mud and just died with its legs down. But all of the little osteoderms, the protective tiny little bones that kind of float external, right under the they're skin... They're the external bumps on a crocodile or a... Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, exactly. But they're made out of bone, yeah. And so they're called osteoderms, and all of them are in place still. They're perfectly oh. preserved in situ around the arms and legs of this tortoise. And but there's no shell? No shell. The shell was gone, so that's why I think it got stuck in mud. Um, so <laughs> the legs and the shell went away. And the shell went away. Probably got scavenged. I got to say something about that, uh, stuck in mud. I was fortunate to visit John Long, paleontologist at his lab oh, wow. at Flinders University in Adelaide, Australia. And he showed me a skeleton that had been found of a large flightless bird, a dromornis, mm. I think. And they're huge, like horse-sized. Yeah. And they find these bones on these huge mud pans. And this particular specimen had been running on a dry bit, hit a muddy patch, and got stuck mid-stride, which snapped its leg. And it mm -hmm. died on that spot from its injury. I mean, you can actually see, oh, my God, this bird right. died from this mm -hmm. bone crack as it was running. And it was right there. I mean, obvious. And, and oh, just that fell. Would, yeah, that would hurt. So. That would hurt. <laughs> Those You've got only half a turtle. Are these turtle. big turtle arms? Uh, they're tortoise, yeah. So these tortoise. are. Yeah, right, excuse me. These are relatively large land tortoise that lived here in North America while it was still warm enough for them to be all the way up here in Montana. So usually, if you have these big land tortoise, that means that the climate never got to freezing. Ah, uh, I love um, it. Because they can't handle it. So I can't imagine Montana not having a freezing. Well, season. wait. Would this be near the PETM, the the Paleocene Eocene Thermal Maximum? Uh, no, this is after the thermal maximum, but still so it was warm. it was pretty hot. So this is um, in the Neogene, so uh, somewhere in between the Oligomyocene. So back in there. Yeah, in between the Oligocene and Miocene. And the PETM was the Paleocene-Eocene ther thermal maximum. Back farther. So I'm wondering, back to some of the type specimens. There's Ooh. a type specimen uh, from the Bear Gulch, uh, Stethacanthus. That you've got there. Stethacanthus, can you describe Stethacanthus and what you're doing with the Stethacanthus then you're... Let me, let me itch my back for a second here. <laughs> oh, man. Stethacanthus is so cool. Um, during the Carboniferous, sharks just went wild with their evolutionary diversification. And we get some really weird ones. Oh, um, yeah. And Stethacanthus is probably one of the king kings kings and queens of the of the weird sharks. So Stethacanthus is a fairly large shark. I think it ranged up to like four feet long maybe. But the, the thing that makes it so weird is that it has this like anvil-shaped mohawk thing off the top of its head. And what's even weirder is that if you look at it fairly closely with like maybe a hand lens, you can see the top surface of that mohawk has like 
teeth, like little shark teeth. So if you're unfamiliar with shark skin, shark skin is actually just like modified shark teeth that covers its body. And so the top of this thing, I don't even, the, it's called a spine. The mohawk. Yeah, the, it's the it, technical It looks like an airplane a, strut, kind of. Yeah, it's just bizarre. And there's structure in it, so it didn't like deflate and then inflate or anything. Um, but it's called a spine brush complex. That's the official term for this structure. Huh. Does any other um, animal it, have this? Is there a comparative? Well, kind of. The, there's well. other sharks that have them. So Falcatus. Falcatus is another shark with a, a spine brush complex. And these are somewhat similar to a ratfish's tenaculum, which is used for mating right what's your own so you've got the type specimen of a stethacanthus what's the species uh i think it's montanus stethacanthus montanus so it's a fairly large Wait, this spine thing is brush on the head because i thought i saw it once on the back or on where the well, dorsal it's fin kind is of on the back like at yeah. the back of the skull it's the back of the skull but not where the dorsal right. fin is farther, farther there, is forward. there a dorsal fin yes they okay. did have what we think. They're cartilaginous fish, right. so we don't have a lot of them um, to, to kind of figure it out. But I think most people assume that they had a dorsal fin. My personal idea is any weird structure that pops up in evolution is usually related to sexual selection. <laughs> That's when things get weird. That's I will, when things I will, get weird. Yeah, things get weird, you know. Yep. So that's my suggestion with Falcatus, Falcatus, that other species of shark. Um, we actually have two different morphotypes on one single slab laying right next to each other. Right. And so we assume that the male was the one with the spine brush complex and the female didn't. So there have is one. sexual dimorphism, you think? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In case you've forgotten, sexual dimorphism is the distinct difference in size or appearance between the sexes of an animal in addition to the difference between the sexual organs themselves. For example, big silverback male gorillas can be twice the size and weight of the females, or male sea lions can weigh a ton while the females weigh only about 800 pounds. But it's quite the opposite with deep sea anglerfish, for example, where the females can be 60 times bigger and a million times heavier than the tiny little pathetic parasitic males. Oh my. So do you actually have that one? I've seen the fossil when I was at uh, Dick London and Eileen Grogan's lab, yep. where they're actually, she is biting onto his, she's holding on. Right, right, they what? still have that his. specimen. There's a That's... fossil of them having courtship? Maybe. Yes. Dating? Maybe. Yep. Yeah, so we think that this female might have, like, it might have been part of the dance. I can't imagine that they could actually, like, do the deed while she was holding on to Does that structure. Does this male have claspers to prove that it's a male? Yeah. Yes. Okay, okay. Yes. so you do know um, so the male a... has the structure. Right, right. And there's other It's fish. a grabbing device. Yeah. It's... So yeah. I think it goes mostly into like a courtship dance. Like they maybe could change it colors or, you know, something. And watch this. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> watch me move this thing around or something. And then if the females liked it, they would go and hold on to it. Maybe do like oh. one of those swan dances, you know. And then, <laughs> and then when I it's love that. time, they move off to oh. a, a darker area to... Can I paint a mural of that out there do. for you? I hope you do. Oh, man. It. All right, I got a job.
Hey, all right, so then, so the collection, you got a lot of cool stuff. Got a lot of cool. Your life took a big turn suddenly in the showbiz. What happened there? Yeah, that was that was fun. Oh man, Un completely unexpected. I was not a theater kid. Like I, I have no background in show business, and so I was doing an outreach at our local children's museum. I'm pretty sure. And one of the producers, a production company here in Missoula, started by uh, Hank and John Green. She was happened to be there too. She was a producer for SciShow. And was like, hey, you got a pretty cool job. You want to be on SciShow Talk Show where we interview cool people with cool jobs? And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. So I had my interview with Hank Green. It lasted forever. I brought fossils. We joked. It was great. Um, and afterwards, they were like, hey, we have this idea for a show. It's just in the idea phases. Um, but it's going to be about dinosaurs or something. Would you be interested in hosting pop? may like be a host and I was like oh wow maybe sure um yeah I don't know how good I'm gonna be at it and then we're like well you did really good at this so let's have you come in and do a couple of screen tests where you actually like read off of a monitor a teleprompter and have people like give you directions and I was like okay so I did a couple of those it went well every everybody's like yeah you can do this and um now we just need to get funding. So everything just went like radio silent for almost a year. I had actually written wow. it off, almost forgot about it. And then in March, I got an email that was like, we got money. We start filming next week. We need scripts. We need, you know, and. Wow. Where did you film? We filmed right here in Missoula, Montana. And uh, <laughs> fittingly, our, our now studio, it's been in a few different places in town, but where it is currently and where we have always filmed eons is in the old funeral home in town. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah. So all three of you, all three of the hosts is, is Hank uh, and Blake and you are all in Missoula? Yep, we're all in Missoula, so that makes it easier. Hank is kind of stepping away because he is an incredibly busy dude writing books and making more shows and just being this creative innovator that he is. And our scripts take a lot of time to read. It's not just like going. No, they're for long. Like they're 15 minutes. minutes. Yeah, 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah, and so that for me uh, takes me about an hour and a half to film a 15 minute episode. And you do it so standing in front of a green screen? Yep, we stand in front of a green screen. Yep. And so um, he's kind of stepping away. So we actually have a new host, and we were just about to bring her up when the world ended in March. Oh. Uh, so Michelle Barboza Ramirez will be our new host once we can get her up here. So we'll bring her up like four times a year and have her shoot a batch load of episodes, Great. and then we'll trickle them out Great. throughout the year. Um, so someday, someday we're going to have another beautiful face on our screen. Now, while binge-watching Eons, we came across an episode, and Ray and I were blown away. I had never heard oh. of the Carnian Pluvial episode. So do you know <laughs> a lot about that? No, I didn't know about it either. And what is shocking, what just blows my mind, is that one of our largest collections here at the University of Montana is a late Triassic coral collection. I mean, we got coral... Gobs and gobs and gobs of coral from the end of the Triassic. This pluvial event happened a little bit earlier and it mostly affected life on land, so that might be the reason why I never heard of it, even though we have a lot of. And pluvial means rain, and the idea was that it pretty much rained a lot for two million years straight, but certainly not as much as it I, does in Ketchikan. I could tell you about pluvial events. We are having a pluvial event, but pluvial, I'm a pluviophiliac. I love. 
I love rain, but this idea that it rained on the planet for two million years, how do you, how does one figure that out? What what oh. happened there? Oh man, so th they kept finding huge flood deposits <laughs> all over the world. And they were like, man, really? there had to be a lot of water. There was a lot of water. There had to been a lot of water moving. Like we keep finding all of these Lacustrian flood deposits all over the world about the same time. So finally scientists got together and they're like, all right, let's document this. Let's find them all, let's date them all, and let's see what's going on here. And it turned out there was a huge shift in climate and I believe it was due to the breakup of Pangea. So Pangea was the giant supercontinent that uh, spanned all the way from the Arctic Ocean to the Antarctic Ocean. So North Pole to South Pole is this giant thing. Um, and it started to break up towards the end of um, the middle. What age? Early, yeah, early. Well, it came all the way together at the earliest Triassic. And so right after it came together, it started to break up. So apart. the Indian, there's the Induan and the Clinician ages. Could be. Oh, Carnian found it. Carnian is Carnian. late Triassic, and it is two yep. million years. Yeah, about right yeah. at two million. Yeah. So um, there's the breakup. It starts to the planet's climate changes radically, and it rains and it rains and it rains, and the ecosystems shift dramatically. Mm -hmm. And from this triumphant rain event, dinosaurs emerge. Boom! Yep. So <laughs> dinosaurs had been on the scene since the early Triassic, but they were they stayed pretty small, and they were kind of they were minor. They were very 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 minor from this um, from this time period. The things that were taking off were the crocodilians. So the crocodiliomorphs and some other species that look like dinosaurs. So we call them like the fake dinosaurs or the look like ones, dinosaurs. Yeah. Um, right. So there was like crocodiles evolving to be bipedal basically um their hip structures That's a scary were still... thought exactly right or a galloping um long-legged <laughs> crocodile coming after you yeah so they were starting to evolve into these different niches after the permian extinction event and kind of leaving dinosaurs in the dust in the shadows and then for whatever reason it was maybe because dinosaurs were slightly more um warm-blooded than their crocodiliomorph ancestors um this carnian pluvial event completely knocked the crocodiles not out but definitely out of dominance and so um, that left the world open for all those tiny little dinosaurs so wait why would a wet environment knock out a pretty much an aquatic or semi-aquatic reptile well, some of these dinosaur lookalikes weren't aquatic right, anymore. Right, right, okay. Yeah, so they were all terrestrial. They had the same body plan. Mm -hmm. So only the aquatically oriented ones were the ones that survived. So right. wasn't there a low oxygenation <laughs> during the early Triassic? It was the lowest there of oxygen been... on the planet ever? Well, no, that can't be right because our what... planet started with no okay, oxygen. Okay, all right. I'm talking about talking about and, and oxygen was created by life. No, I'm talking about right. um, you know during the Mesozoic. I think the Mesozoic had decently high, not as high like the Carboniferous, the highest ever at like 32 percent oxygen. Um, but I think the Mesozoic we're at 12 percent now, right? I think we're at 21 percent oxygen. And humans can handle to about 15 to 18%, okay. right. and then we start getting a little loopy um, if it gets any lower. I just love this idea of uh, two million years of rain, and then the dinosaurs emerge from that. It's kind of poetic. It you is. Know? It's it is. So why do we think? Why? Why? 
Um, again, so as you get these continents to break up, so you go from a single landmass and you start to get individual landmasses, that also opens up oceanic currents. And so before, the currents just hit the sides of Pangaea on the east and the west coast. They couldn't go all the way through. There was no um, really circumnavigating oceanic circulation. And then you start to get these fragmentation events that completely changes right. the oceanic circulation, right. which also changes the um, atmospheric Sure, so fragmentation creates so many different and varied ecosystems, which opens up thousands of niches right. for body plants mm -hmm. to evolve and, and succeed. Right. So if you think about like the difference of like a shallow sea, for example, all the life that is in like a coral reef, for example, versus a desert. I mean, there's obviously still life in the desert, but there's not that crazy amount of diversity that you can get. The other thing is you start to get islandification. So you get these fragments and there's life on those fragments, and then they fragment apart. And then those two groups of animals can't interbreed anymore. And that's another way that you can get a lot of very fast evolutionary events. So um, the finches on the Galapagos Island, for example, that's a great, uh, that's a great example for islandification. That was a great eons episode, by the way. That, that <laughs> taught me a lot because they actually showed the different finches and which ones. It was, it was great animation. Yeah. I like that. Right. Our, our animators are, they work magic. <laughs> That's for sure. So basically when you guys are doing the eon show, you must have beforehand decided what age group, what's your level that you're looking for? Are you trying to get the kids? Are you trying to get college age yeah, what's folks? Your what's the level? What's the demographic? What were you shooting for? And what have you found out with your listeners? Right, right. So when we first started, we thought we were going to skew fairly young, actually. We were mm -hmm. thinking more of like upper grade school, maybe middle school, maybe lower high school, but definitely not college. Um, so our first few episodes are kind of simple. Uh, they're, they're not dumbed down, but we definitely don't deep dive. And so we started getting these comments like, why are you talking to us like we're kindergartners? We know what a dinosaur is, you know? And so we started getting feedback just from our audience of like, why do you talk to us so condescendingly? Do you really not know that we, we don't know what a trilobite is, you know? And so we're like, oh. And then once the channel is on YouTube long enough, you start to get some data back. And so right, we started right. to see that our main demographic was 18 to 34-year-olds, um, which is still a, a wide skew, but way older than we thought we were going to be. So we consistently started to raise the bar. Um, we did a really informal survey a couple years ago. Well, it feels like a couple years ago but it was last year um we did last a year survey. was a couple of years ago <laughs> yeah. oh my gosh so um we we kind of asked and it was a lot of college age students uh that were using this as kind of a supplement to their classes a lot of upper upper level college students so some graduate students and then a lot of teachers using our, our oh, great um, our great yeah i know i was so one i was so glad to hear that like most of the teachers that watched our our episodes were using them in the classroom as long as they could use uh, YouTube, obviously, in their classrooms. Not not all schools will allow it. Cool. So that was a that was a big eye opener. So now we just kind of shoot for that upper level. Like these are paleo nerds. They have a basic understanding. This has been introduced to them at some point in their life, maybe. Um, and so we we shoot for that upper level, but we try not to like overjudge 
arc in any well, of our episodes. But you probably still have the 10-year-old enthusiasts oh, yeah. that are just crazy yeah. for it. Do you get stopped in the supermarket now? Oh, no. No, no. no I have never been recognized in Missoula. No? Um, no. Nobody nobody knows me here, which is fine. I'm okay with that. I'm okay hey, with that. Hey, aren't you that person um, talking about archosaurs? Right. Uh, yeah. You're that. Hooray. No, I don't Hand think. the grapefruit. I, I've been sideways looked at by kids before. They're like, why do, All right. why do, do I, I think you? I, why do I know you? You look really familiar, but they never come up to me. Two last quick questions yeah, yeah for sure you have a tattoo i do i want to know what the tattoo is i've kind of seen it on the on the screen yeah it's a bunch of flowers i can show you okay i, I thought it was paleo no i shockingly don't have a paleo okay. tattoo and ray has a trilobite I, I have a trilobite and a ratfish the, uh, and a I lump sucker yeah. he's got that oh wow there oh See, wait 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 awesome. i want to look at i want to get a picture of us Yep, I got it. And nice. the last question I have before we do the standard questions is, do you say epoch or epic? Oh, my God. So I grew up in the Midwest, and it was always epic. It was always, yes. it was always epic. And um, oh, that's been the hardest part for me because we, we are an international YouTube show. <laughs> and, and Blake says Epoch. Epoch. And, 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 epoch. and Dave and I are always going okay, back well, and you forth. Know what? He I, says epoch. It, I say it, epic. If I'm with the you. controversy can be fixed oh. if you go to where English was profitable, that is in England. Yeah. And so it's called epoch. Right, right. If I if I'm hanging out with my Midwestern paleo kids, I usually will say epoch, or I mean epic. But <laughs> epic, on yeah. I have changed uh, to to be more inclusive of this oh. word. Yes, because um, more people know it as epoch than epic. I have learned. I have changed on screen. I say it epoch. In my personal life, it's still epic. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Here's my last question okay. for you. Time travel. If you could get into a time machine and go back in time, when would you go to and what do you want to see? Oh, man, you guys when? are coming in hot with these questions. When? I mean, what do you want to see? This is your wish, your paleo wish come true. You want so, to go see what? Uh, I So I'm a huge fan of mammals, but if I only get to go back once, I gotta go back and That's see it. dinosaurs. You can go back twice. No, go. we'll let you go back go. twice, but you have to be specific. <laughs> okay, if I if I get to go back the first time, I would go back to the late Jurassic. I want to see all the sauropods. I want to see how they worked, how they lived so closely, so exact. For example, I'm getting ahead of myself. The Morrison Formation, there's like 10 different species of sauropods. So these are long neck, long tail, largest land animals of all time. And there's like 10 different species in the same formation. So like you need to eat 500 pounds of 
vegetation a day, let's say, that's on the low end, I'm sure, and you've got 10 different species. These are 10 different herds of sauropods that are all living in the same place, eating in the same area. How does that work? The other thing is their nesting ground. So I would try to get there during nesting season. Now, while we don't have a really good picture on nests in the Morrison, we do have really good evidence of them in South America. And so I'm using some comparative here for the Morrison. So I try to go back in the spring because in South America, these giant herds of sauropods are nesting in the same place and some of their nests are like 10 feet apart. You have an animal that's 100 feet long and it's nesting with all of its peers and they're only 10 feet apart. How does that even work? How do they even do it? So ask, ask away on that one because I'm super curious. I'm also, I'm like, what was the smell like? I mean, like <laughs> nesting bird colonies, like Horrific, stink I'm so betting. bad. Penguins reek. Was it like the Amazon basin where it is trillions of pounds of plant material everywhere? I don't think it was as big and dense of a forest as that. I think it, we had like open, open plains with little areas of um, jungle, vegetation right, right. and jungle and forest. And then these, I'm assuming these sauropods didn't stop for very long. So like they would kind of move through like a- I never thought about that. Nests only 10 feet apart, 10 feet yeah. apart, but these things are 100 Following feet long. Following through the landscape. They would step on right. the eggs by accident. But they don't. There's no, like there's really no evidence of, of a massive amounts of nest failure due to your neighbor knocking you over. Smushing your... Yeah. So <laughs> like, have a supervisor I would, there. I would love to just see that, to smell it, just to feel it. To I mean, smell the ground it. has to shake. I mean, that's all... We got to use all of our senses yeah. That's here. quite a picture. It's quite a picture. Now, Dave gave you two chances. Yes. You get to go back twice. What's the other one? The other one would probably be in the late Paleocene, early... Eocene. So maybe um, there's two kind of big uh, divisions in the Cenozoic. There's the Paleogene and then there's the Neogene. And the division kind of comes with the life that we see in those two. So in the Paleogene, you get all of these kind of weird, archaic looking mammals. And then in the Neogene, you're like, oh yeah, that's that could be a horse, sure. Right. Sure, that looks like a horse. Yeah, and so I would love to go back to see all of these weird mammals from the early Eocene, late Paleocene, and, and just watch them. Just, just watch them. Pet them. What what's that big what's Pet the big em. thing with the weird <laughs> I, I horns just that... I just made a little joke there that I found funny myself and you would want to pet them. P-E-T-M. Oh, Get it? Yeah. Huh? Uh, huh? Huh? That's good. Huh? No, the like paleogene huh? thermal maximum. Very fun. Pet him. Pet him. Yep. I would love to. David, wrap it up, okay. sir. Here you go. Here's a heavy hitter. Um, You are a really good communicator, and this has been a, a lot of fun, and you, you talk with excitement and energy and interest, and it's awesome. Well, thank you. Science is under attack right now, and especially through social media. People are believing someone's opinion or an unresearched post or I can't tell you how many photos I've seen where, look at this beautiful, the eye of Ireland, and it's obviously Photoshop, but no one's doing the checking and, and the backup, you know, searching. Science is under attack because people are believing opinion rather than facts. So what can you do as a scientist and educator and communicator to change the way people are absorbing information on social media, which so often is wrong? 
Yeah, combating misinformation is, oof, that's a tough one. And I don't know if there's any real answer to that yet. I mean, this is kind of a new phenomenon that we're getting is this huge amount of misinformation coming out of the social media. So what I try to do, at least with my own social media, is I only put out fact. You know, I'm not, I'm not speculating on anything. And I, I, I hate to say this phrase, but I stay in my lane. I'm not a virologist. I am not going to comment on anything that is around virology. Obviously, I would send you good source material and tell you where to look if you want it, but I can't comment on anything because I'm not a virologist. I like to talk about paleo. That's what I know the best, and that's what I'm most comfortable about telling you about. The other thing I think is it starts we gotta start much younger with science. Um, getting kids really excited about science early, um, before they get into high school and on social media or middle school and on social media. Little kids are naturally curious and they love yeah. the natural world. So giving kids tools very young and keep working at it all through all through K through 12 and then obviously into college about how to really judge the information that they're getting to basically be a skeptic all the time. <laughs> Double check everything that you read. Make sure there's a peer-reviewed journal article in a well-known journal by well-known people at well-known universities. You're not like, not Joe Blow in Idaho or something. I don't know. Not to say anything bad about Idaho. <laughs> but, um, or Joe. Or Joe. <laughs> Joes, y'all are great. Um, so especially, there's one Joe in particular that's incredibly great right now. But um, yeah, so I'm just... Oh! I, I, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I think it comes down to making sure teachers understand science, making sure that they can communicate this toolbox of science that we have at our disposal. Every time I go outside, I see something new. I'm like, oh, did the flickers come in this early last year? Or, oh, that larch turned way the faster flickers? than it did this year. Yeah, so the northern flickers, yeah, they're, oh. they're really pretty little dinosaurs. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so I think that, that that's a generational thing, though. You know, like those kids that we're starting now aren't going to be of age to make any significant changes in our country for a very long time, you know. So you got to play the long game here. But yeah. I think it comes down to education and, and, and teaching kids how to maneuver Hopefully we'll have classes in fact-checking. Mm, yeah, yeah, you know, and I think that's going to be... it's. It's going to be very interesting to see where universities come out from this pandemic. Um, they're going to have to be working more efficiently and catering to a very different audience of students that on the outside of this pandemic as before it started. So kids are going to be want, they're going to want more civics. They're going to want to know how to slay fake news and all that other BS. Uh, and, you know, and so like, I think colleges could really, you know, rise to the occasion and start making new classes, start reorganizing their departments to reflect this newfound kind of advocacy. Um, that Wait, you're talking about Z Canada, has. right? Because it's not going to happen here. Uh, man, I know, I know, I know. I just had a friend move to Canada recently, and I'm like, do you know how lucky you I are? Know. This is just one, man, you won the lottery. But um, but anyways, I think, yeah, so that's that's kind of where I'm at right now. I'm doing my part. I'm well, trying. That's awesome. Trying. That was a great answer. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, we all got to do our part. You know, when science is under attack, you just got to keep doing science. Right. and. 
I like your idea of staying in your lane and uh, opining about what you know about too. Yeah, so. yeah. Lean in to play play to your strengths. You know, like if, like I said, for whatever reason, my brain absorbs information about ancient life that's basically the only thing it absorbs i can't keep a schedule straight i can't do anything else but you know what (laughs) i could give you the history of life in an hour but um but so that's that's what i know that's what i love any day (laughs) okay so uh is it is it cheating to say uh, will you give us a tour of ray and i ever come up there Heck yeah, come right. down when it's safe, of course. Right. Come down, I'll show you everything. I'm going to be painting that mural there of the Bear Gulch, right? I, so we're working with you and the fossils and stuff. Yeah, so. you let me know anything you need. I can send you pictures, okay. right. measurements. Paint brushes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Paint brushes. Hey, Callie, it has been so much fun uh, meeting yeah. you here in cyberspace. Right. And l- look forward to... Uh, hanging out with you when we all get through this pandemic and all the craziness in the world. But thank you so much. You're a great communicator. And, you you know, you truly do make science fun. Good. That's what we need. We need more people. I just listened to um, the Ologies episode with Bill Nye. And he was like, you you got to make it fun. You got to make it funny. You you, you just have to. I love Allie Ward and Ologies. Yes, I do too. I'm a fan. um, I'm a fan. Big fan right here. Big fan of your guys's. And thank you so much for having me on your guys's podcast. This was so much fun. I'm glad we all finally got to meet digital high fives all around. Thanks. Thanks, Kelly. We'll see you on the rebound. Bye. Well, that was a lot of fun, was it not, sir? She was great. Really a good communicator and interesting. And I love her path from from paleo nerd to paleo nerd. (laughs) Yeah, it started out, uh, her dad was a paleo nerd, so it goes generational, I guess. But they're in the Midwest digging up seashells from oh so long ago. And that's, that's where it started. Yeah, actually, you know, what's kind of interesting is that it doesn't always start with dinosaurs, does it? You know, it's funny. I, I never I found brachiopods and uh, clams, obviously, in ancient sea. Kind of was boring for me. I, I would rather find teeth or bone rather than a, a boring clam. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's cool. I, you know, it's obvious uh, why Callie and uh, the rest of the crew there at Eons are doing well. They're doing very good with uh, making science fun. And in the end, uh, I think that's how we expand an appreciation and a belief in science, is it not? Uh, I wasn't even listening to what you were saying. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to make it fun, David. Oh, well. Well, that was so I boring. Don't... What you just said there bored me. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I don't have little puppets to help me out. Uh, I, I I try to be enthusiastic, you know. And, no, and, no, uh, you're great. It's, it's a pleasure, and I always learn so much. Again, I I default to your paleo knowledge. I'll never pass you. <laughs> mm, I don't know. You're coming up. I mean, here pretty quick, you know. But yeah, I've learned a lot uh, in talking to Callie as always, and you know these weird things that they're uncovering. It was cool to find out what she has found out as she's worked in her show. Like stuff like the pluvial event where it rained yeah. for two million years. Yeah. That's like, that's cool. That is totally so. cool. You know, my notes for this is I always put up a little sheet of the the Cenozoic. The Cenozoic has epochs. Epochs. <laughs> e- epochs. You win. And then there is the period, epoch, and then the age. And the age names are the weirdest. 
Danian, Solidian, Thantian, Yepressian. What? White, white Pressian? Have you heard of that one? I don't know about that one, man, but yeah, it's, all, it's like poetry. Pretty sure it's Epressian. Bartonian, The Simpsons got in there. Probonian, Rupelian, Chatian, Aquint, Aquitanian. Aquitanian, I believe. I think some of those are the North American land mammal ages that you're rattling yes, off. Yes, they are. They're the early uh, ones. So uh, how do we find out who named them and why? Well, we'd have, there is a system there. Okay, well, let's find someone. Let's find a guest who can tell us about naming and, and nomenclature and, and all that stuff. That would be awesome. Well, I know a guy who knows a guy, but I know a guy. <laughs> so anyways, we, we, we carry on here in these tumultuous waters of the modern day. Yeah. We are looking to the past to guide us into the future. That's right. Forward into the past. That's right, sir. Another episode, Yeah. Thanks. another thing or two we've learned, yes, and more people we've come to admire and respect. That's right. Are you a paleo nerd? I am a paleo nerd, now more than ever. Me too. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ray, I will talk to you on the next one, and uh, thank you. Thank you, sir. All right, goodbye from Ojai, California. And from beautiful Ketchikan, Alaska, by the sea. This is Ray Troll saying adios. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. 